Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the intersection between science and spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Honey. And this week, we are talking about the science and art of occult perfumery, oil, and incense. Um, but before we do that, it's currently January 7th, and we had way too much fun doing our What Happened on This Day research. So we have a lot of them. So we're each going to do one, and then Phil has two more. So bear with us. You've got lots of interesting factoids today. Um, let's see. Who's starting? Phil, you're uh, I will start. Okay. So uh, Felix Edouard Justine Emile Borel, the most ridiculous name, was a French mathematician who was among the pioneers of measure theory and its application of probability. In one of his books on probability, he proposed the thought experiment that a monkey hitting keys at random on a typewriter will, with absolute certainty, eventually type every book in France's Bibliothèque Nationale de France, and is now popularly known as the Infinite Monkey Theorem. I just thought that one was funny, so I chose that. That's actually how we make our episode outlines. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Every time I hear about the infinite monkey theorem, I just I see that meme of the monkey at the keyboard. It's on like it's there's stickers of it everywhere, everywhere. But literally us in preparation for an episode. Okay, the next one. So Nick Nikola Tesla died on January seventh, nineteen forty three, at age eighty six. Um, and he was a Serbian-American inventor and researcher who designed and built the first alternating current induction motor in 1883. He emigrated to the United States in 1884, and having discovered the benefits of a rotating magnetic field, the basis of most alternating current machinery, he expanded its use in, di- in dynamos, sure, transformers, and motors. Because alternating current could be transmitted over much greater distances than direct current, George Westinghouse bought patents from Tesla, the system, when he built the power station at Niagara Falls to provide electricity power to the city of Buffalo, New York. Yay, Tesla. He's great. Um, cool. So also in 1949, the first photographs of chromosomes and genes were published in Science Journal. I bet you didn't know that you can take photographs of genes. I'm going to tell you how. Um, so the article was written by Dr. Daniel Chapman pease and Dr. Richard Fraley-Baker of the School of Medicine in the University of Southern California. And basically what they did is they took tissue sections from the salivary glands of Drosophila, which is a fruit fly, and they visualized these with an electron microscope. Um, they can do this with uh, Drosophila specifically because they have very large primordial chromosomes in the salivary glands. So you can see these giant multiple chromosomes made of thousands or um, sometimes tens of thousands of identical units. Um, so at this, uh, this visualization ske- um, scheme, you can actually see the um, chromosomes themselves visible in the electron microscope, even before the structure of DNA itself was published. Okay, um, last two are just fun quick ones. Uh, so today, uh, transatlantic telephone service began in 1927. How crazy. And now here we are, you know, between New York and London, and here we are between America and England doing a video uh, <laughs> transatlantic phone call crazy. <laughs> that we're recording as well. How wild. And then also daguerreotypes. Uh, the, uh, Louis, Louis Daguerre announced his photographic system today at the Académie des Sciences in Paris. So daguerreotypes, if you don't know, are one of the first forms of photographs, essentially. And they were really popular for a very, 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 very long time. And so that was just another thing that happened today, which is crazy. So many things happened. So many things happened today, which is awesome. Yeah. Of course, none of it is relevant to today's time. That's okay, because cool science facts. (laughs) It's well worth the time. 
Um, so why are we why did we decide to talk about perfume, oil, and, and incense today? Really, the answer is because we like it and we wanted to. So um, you're just getting an episode full of something that we all really enjoy. Um, but let's go ahead and talk about how smell actually works. Han, do you want to give the uh, summary version and then I will give the <laughs> not summarized version that I because I can't help myself? Yeah, you can get like the cliff notes first and then we're going to like deep dive a little bit. So basically smell is, um, it's a very complicated process that we don't really fully understand. But in brief, volatile chemicals from the object in question will enter your nose and they will hit receptors on your olfactory epithelium, the back of your nose. And um, receptors on the olfactory epithelium will change their structure in response to different different volatile chemicals hitting them. This will cause subsequent signaling to happen to the piriform cortex and eventually to the orbitofrontal cortex in your brain. And your brain then generates that signal, which is uh, associated with the sensation of odor and sometimes also with the sensation of memory, which we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah. So to get more into that, odors stimulate neurons in the nose by activating a selection of G-protein coupled receptors, which are also known as GPCRs, a variety of which are found in the membrane of most mammalian cells, if not all. Um, It wasn't actually until 1991, thanks to the work of Linda Buck and Richard Axel, that we got a clue on the relation of GPCRs to smell. So by extracting the mRNA from the olfactory epithelium, which is just cells, in rats and then probing its genomic makeup, they found a huge family of genes that encoded these uh, G-protein coupled receptors. And then from that, they hypothesized that the genes represented hundreds of different olfactory receptors. There was subsequent work then done, which led to a 2004 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine, which confirmed that these GPCRs were directly activated by specific odors. And we now know that rodents actually have approximately 100,000 such genes and humans have more more than 400. Kenny has a quick note here that's actually important to note, which is that a lot of papers on odor and memory are done in rats who rely a lot more upon their noses and sense of smell, um, also this idea of scent marking, than we do. And that makes more sense given that they have more known genes with this than we do, but it could also be a genome annotation thing. So basically what that's saying is that there's not a direct correlation between what we see in rodents and in humans, just like we see with animal studies. Um, That's important to know when we talk about this, since most of the studies are done in animals. But interesting fact, olfactory receptors are not only found in your nose, Some contribute to kidney and lung physiology, others to metabolic control. Some actually regulate hair growth and wound healing. For example, the OR2AT4 receptor in skin and hair follicles promotes wound healing and hair growth when it's activated by synthetic sandalwood odors. Muscles in your airways can express certain receptors. One of these can be activated with um, an odorant that is similar to lily of the valley, and that promotes muscle contraction, whereas activating a separate olfactory receptor With an apricot-like smell, it's from a chemical called amyl butyrate that inhibits contraction of your muscles. And then this is something that actually doesn't have necessarily scientific evidence fully supporting it, but there is a leading hypothesis on it, which is that the um, OR1B2 receptor in sperm, some scientists speculate that this, like the binding of certain peptides to this receptor might be the reason why sperm can um, go along the female reproductive tract before it reaches the egg, which is super interesting. And I would like to see more research on that because I'm just genuinely curious. 
And then some olfactory receptors are actually activated by chemicals produced by your own body rather than externally, such as OR4M1, which is an olfactory receptor in your liver, activated by a peptide hormone that promotes glucose synthesis. So really the science behind olfactory and like smell and its association with memory is very understudied, surprisingly. We don't have a ton of evidence on exactly how it works, but generally there's this idea of the genes and they're regulated by external factors and the olfactory bulbs in a lot of places in your body. Super fascinating. If you're curious, we will have an overview link below in addition to some other papers, but that's a brief background of kind of generally how things work. I have a question about this because I, I was kind of actually it's surprising to me that um, you have uh, GPCRs which are active in your kidneys, for example, which can be activated by odors. Do you think that this is like um, a kind of redundancy thing where the structure is the same, but it has multiple functions? Like, is it sort of that evolved for a particular purpose? And then it just happens that we can also use this to smell something. Or is there some kind of like missing function there? My guess is that it's something probably that has to do with um, allosteric sites and or tissue-specific bindings. So different GPCRs and different tissues might have specific residue mutations that lead to binding of specific molecules better than others, which would then elicit this kind of downstream response for the GPCRs. That would be my scientific hypothesis, I guess. I'm not an expert in this field, right? But like that's how I'm guessing this probably works, something akin to that. Or it's possible that it could just be different allosteric sites on a protein that are separate from the actual like full active site that allow for differential activation right wait now we kind of know how smell works well why is it so important to us as kind of in a spiritual setting right well we know that fragrance and odor hold a really high cultural importance and the reason for this is that there is a strong connection between fragrance memory and emotion Um, and so we have some evidence for this from ptsd survivors for example Um, PTSD survivors from shared traumatic events um, often share the same odor triggers. There was a study of a disaster in Khmer, and um, it was a a really strong shared memory, uh, the smell of smoke, which was reported as a common trigger, for example. And we also know that areas of the brain associated with emotion will show increased activity on an fMRI when you're exposed to different scents. So um, the amygdala, for example, is often thought of being responsible for fear, is more active when you're uh, exposed to an adversive scent or when you're um, exposed to a scent which you're exposed to when you were going through something um, kind of scary, which is, it makes sense, right? Um, In a similar manner, the brain activity in regions related to your memory, so your hippocampus, for example, can be observed when smelling a perfume associated with with a particular action. So say, smell the perfume when you're doing the thing, you're given um, the perfume later, you may have a better memory of that thing happening. In theory, this seems to be mostly related to autobiographical or personal memories, though it's it tends to be um, quite individualized to your sort of personal history. Um, it's also pretty interesting that you can supposedly reactivate memories that were formed during sleep dependent memory association. So expose someone to an odor in their sleep while their kind of their memory is consolidating, re-expose them when they wake up and they will have a better memory of that thing, which is really, really interesting. It also seems like there's quite a different uh, cultural experience of smells, like it's highly personalized. And if you look at the different associations between odors, it varies quite a lot across culture. So maybe that's important when we talk about later, the different um, cultural impacts of different incenses and things. So we know how smell works, and we also know it has a powerful effect on our memory perception. How is it used in historical settings? That's my cue. And in in celebration for today, so I recently had COVID, uh, in celebration for today, my nose has actually decided to start smelling again. Yeah. So that's good. 
taste is a whole other thing, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. This is actually related to smell. So yeah. random, random factoid here. Um, when you like flavors that you identify in your mouth are actually a result of your olfactory um, neurons, like something that signal directly to your brain instead of taste, which is just based on like some really generalized like butt experience, right? Okay, sorry, go ahead. Yep. yep. No, it's so funny because right now um, anything like chocolate, coffee, or tea, anything that has a bitter, I'm like a bitter hint to it, I've noticed, it tastes like burnt cigarettes that are moldy and <laughs> have been washed with soap. That's so it horrible. tastes horrible, 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 which is so weird. I don't know. It's like I taste if it has a sugar in it, I can taste that. But as soon as the bitterness comes, it's like triple. I would hate yeah. that. I love coffee so much. I would actually die. Okay. Yeah. Well, hopefully that'll come back. <laughs> Can't believe it. Anyway, so this is an extremely, extremely very brief mundane history of perfumes, incense, and oils because that could literally be talked about endlessly. And we're going to touch a bit upon, th upon this later on as well. Um, so things like incense, perfume, and oil were both considered luxuries as also something that was just commonly desired. If you think about it, you know, like we didn't have deodorant for a very long time. Uh, some cultures still don't use deodorant. Or a lot of times, you know, the the way that we imagine the older world smelling, probably not, probably not super great. Uh, we didn't have things like refrigeration or anything like that. And so these things were seen, you know, the, they're seen as luxuries. If you look at ancient texts like the Iliad, the Odyssey, or really any ancient text at all, there's a lot of talk about rich people having a perfumed oil. But also you see it happening with poor families or poor communities as well because that was just something that was kind of seen as a an integral part of kind of a a good way of life I guess mm -mm -mm. well incense very quickly became tied to religious acts however it was also still used for mundane reasons the smoke itself has been used to repel various pests uh, this was seen in ancient Egypt of the ancient Egyptians using it to repel insects which makes sense because it produces a lot of smoke uh, as well as it considered to have literal purification properties and not just spiritual purification properties it was seen as a way of making the area healthy uh, the ancient greeks like to burn sulfur don't recommend doing that but they saw burning sulfur as a way of also would have smelled bad so there's not just like a association of things smelling good there's also you know sometimes things that smell bad were seen as important as well In that case it was specifically seen as a way to fumigate an area from both spiritual and literal disease uh, I found this kind of cool random fact about the history of perfume. The first recorded chemist was actually a woman named Taputi. She was a perfume maker mentioned in a cuneiform tablet from the second millennium BCE in Mesopotamia. So that's kind of wild. Um, super, super cool. Yeah. Especially that we know her name as well. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. I honestly didn't realize that perfuming specifically outside of like oil, perfumed oil, perfumed um, like bombs was a thing, but apparently it was common in Mesopotamia to have sort of the alembics and other forms of distilling oils. I found this other cool thing in the ninth century, the Arab chemist Al-Kindi wrote the book of the chemistry of perfume and distillation, which contained more than a hundred recipes for fragrant oil salves, aromatic waters, and substitutes or imitations of costly drugs. So there you go. Um, and then the occult history of incense, perfume, and oil. Now, this is the topic that we're going to really be doing case studies in. But for kind of a brief overview, 
Incense has been used in religious rituals since we've had record of incense. Some of the earliest and most used incenses would be frankincense and myrrh, which are made out of dried tree sap and are still made out of that. So those, you know, they found that when they burned, you know, part of the cases when you look at how did they discover this? Well, it's likely if the tree got set on fire, the tree smelled good. So, you know, they probably very quickly figured out how, and those aren't that hard to get out of. You know, you tap the tree and let the sap dry. It's a pretty... I mean, they were still considered luxuries, but they were also pretty easy in general to to gather. Um, so we see these incense being burned both in temple use and also home rituals. And we saw this specifically, like, I think they found cases of incense burners being used in, like, the Neolithic age. So it makes sense that they would find a connection between the spiritual with incense because it smells good and there's a connection to emotion there in terms of perfume i'm not entirely sure how old the occult use of perfume is if anything we see it more as an offering so it's not necessarily used as a tool but it's usually used in votive offerings like we've seen that with sex workers in ancient greece leaving perfume bottles for aphrodite you also see people anointing statues of gods or goddesses with the perfume so it's it tends to be seen more of a, an anointing and a offering than necessarily a tool like incense later on is used in like scrying as like a direct tool um and then for oils well oils kind of go hand in hand with the same thing you that you see both similarly with incense as both a practical application and also a spiritual application of offerings and also used in forms of divination as well um do you want to yeah i can take (laughs) i can take all the grimoire stuff um hand did you want to say something okay um so incense became particularly popular in occult circles beginning in about the 12th and 13th century um when its use was really heavily commented on by albertus magnus who wrote a book called The Book of Secrets, where he discussed the use of using scented smoke and ritual. And this was an act he actually called perfuming, not to be confused with actual perfume. Though a lot, most people consider the use of incense to be to induce a kind of trance like state or a specific mindset prior to ritual work. Albertus' Book of Secrets attested to a miraculous nature of aromatic ingredients for the craft, very akin to kind of what we think of as aromatherapy today, this idea that certain scents can actually have like miraculous healing properties. For example, and this is um, an excerpt taken from the uh, Book of Secrets text, he instructs the user to take the blood of an ass congealed and the fat loopy cervini, it's just the fat of an animal, and sweet incense or gum called storax, which is a resin, gather it all together by equal weights and let them be mixed and then formed into grains or corns be made. And let the house be perfumed with them, that thou shalt see him, we believe he's referencing God in this case, in thy sleep, and shall show to thee all things. So this was essentially a recipe for someone to perfume their house with these ingredients, and then allegedly you would be visited by the divine and be shown certain things within a dream. The use of the sacred smoke was actually then further elaborated on by Agrippa in the 15th century in his Three Books of Occult Philosophy, which if anybody has read is well aware of the importance of incense. And Agrippa specifically used the occult virtue of things as he describes in his first book, and then crafted recipes of incense for each planet, among other things. So Agrippa's work specifically speak of air entering into humans and animals through their pores and their mouths, which is the baseline of his idea of aromatic magic. So he explains 
that air is the cause of dreams and is most closely related to the idea of spirit and souls. He then further explains that air, more than the other elements, reacts to the actions of men, going so far to actually claim that if someone is killed in a certain place and another person passes by the same place, the air is actually filled with spirit and evil of that act, and then the person who's passing through will be affected by it, breathing in or being exposed to evil, and then the feeling of fear that was in the air. Which is super interesting because it's this idea of like, when people talk about, especially I hear this more in like the new age community, where it's like, oh, if something is in like a lower vibration, like that is, that maintains that way, right? And if you pass through it, like you'll be exposed to the same kind of thing. Agrippa actually speaks about that, which I think is super interesting. This outlook though, among other things, led to the utilization of fumes or smoke as kind of this atmospheric way of altering a specific space. And this way, air as smoke takes on the form of these kind of plumes or these clouds, and it can be used in divination or, as is in the case in many, like, ceremonial circles, um, is a vehicle on which the spirits can appear. So an example of this is actually noted in Agrippa, one of many, (laughs) um, and is as follows. If coriander, scalage, henbane, and hemlock be made of fume, please no, don't actually do this because henbane. I was going to say, please do not burn henbane in more ventilated space. Yeah, don't do that. Um, Be made of fume. Spirits will presently come together. Hence, this is why they are called spirit herbs. Also, it is said that a fume made of the root of reedy uh, sage with the juice of hemlock and henbane, again, please don't. Um, Tarsus, Baratus, Red Sanders, and Black Poppy make spirits in strange shapes appear. Now, what's funny about this recipe is the inclusion of like henlock, henbane, Black Poppy. Like, yes, of course, you would be seeing shapes and spirits. Like, nobody's actually surprised by that, right? But those are ingredients that he has within the three books. Regarding oils, we see oils used a lot in folk magic, especially in modern occult circles, especially in rites of love and healing where love filters tend to be oil-based in nature or the affected area is anointed with a certain kind of oil. And oil goes back even farther, back to when the Israelites were in Egypt and onwards, we actually find the recipe for holy anointing oil, such as the one that Samuel used upon David in Exodus 30. And you can go back and read this scripture and you can actually have a recipe on how to make your own holy anointing oil. I follow the recipe that's in Exodus when I make my own. So that goes back, you know, far, far into history in regards to its use. Um, But it's important to recognize that with all this talk on incense and perfumes and scent, it's not all positive, even though it has a lot of positive associations. So um, it impacted the witch trials specifically in later centuries. So, for example, in the 14th century, um, there was a woman named Alice Kitzhiller, I think is how you pronounce it, who was put on trial as a witch because she was accused of making unguents, which is a wax-based perfume. And within this wax-based perfume, it was alleged that she used spiders, black worms, milk oil, and the brains and clothes of an unbaptized child. Very extreme. (laughs) And it was said that these wax perfumes were to cause faces of horned ladies to appear and also led to the conjuration of a demon who took the form of a cat, dog, or a man, who then the Lady Alice took as a lover, and in return, she gained large amounts of wealth. And this is, of course, only one example, as there were many other women who perished from accusations from the creation of engines, and then also like different poultices and other things, using herbs and flower blends to poison, quote-unquote, believers, or the creation of flying potions for witches. 
I wanted to mention that there's a really, really good book that's called um, The Witch's Ointment by Thomas Hatzis. And that talks about the, these ointments, but it also talks about how the existence of them was kind of somewhat manufactured by the Catholic Church because of this whole like witch craze fear thing. So it's really interesting if you're, if you're interested more in the history of that. Which is so funny because like the Catholic Church uses, <laughs> uses incense and oils and like all kinds of stuff that falls within the same line. But I digress. All right. Do you want to get into the case studies? So we essentially collected a couple of case studies from different religions about why fragrance is important and how it's used within the spiritual tradition. I'm going to go through some case studies to kind of examine exactly how uh, fragrance is supposed to work in a spiritual and magical way, because although it's it's used very cross-culturally, it's um, something that actually is, it has a lot of different um potential mechanisms for it. So I guess we're going, to, we're going to examine some different settings and see how it varies. So something really interesting about fragrance is that it's um, thought of as a very sort of liminal thing. Um, it's associated with a, a sort of, it's associated with the transitions in particular, because odor is so diffuse and dynamic and not visible. So it's something that um, has historically been associated a lot with spirit communication, because it can make the intangible tangible. And this is a uh, a common theme um, amongst the case studies we're going to explore. It's sort of thought of as a channel of exchange between the corporal and the disembodied. And so in particular, that that's important in Hellenic religion, which Fel and I will talk about, um, where um, burnt offerings as well as incense are very much used for supplication of the gods. And this is because the incense smoke is thought to rise to the sky with the prayers and the gods will actually like, um, be able to encounter that in, um, with your prayers. So it's a uh, and they, like it's, it's a physical offering thing. Why this actually arose, though, is probably because incense was originally used to mask the smell of burning flesh at burial rites. As Fel mentioned earlier, I think the um, ancient past probably didn't smell particularly good. And as such, it, it developed an association with the afterlife. So it sort of it evolved from something being used to mask smells as something that is actually very important to religion. In particular, sweet scents are thought of as pleasing to the gods, and different hymns will specify different uses of things, but some are very, very common, things like frankincense. Can you think of any others that are really, really popular, Fel? That... Um, I think frankincense, myrrh, storax. Yeah. Bay wasn't really used as an incense, but it was still like used as, and it has a strong smell, so I would still say bay as well. I'm trying to think of anything else that they would burn. Those are the they often say like aromatic herbs, and we're not entirely sure what those were. Any sort of basic smelly herb like rosemary would probably uh, be something among them. In fact, it's what's so funny about frankincense is frankincense is so commonly used that in some cases it literally will just refer to frankincense as basically like that good incense <laughs> like, yeah, that is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's 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 very much scents that tend to be like sweet or pleasing i mean you did mention of course the sulfur that's often used for fumigation so that's not necessarily strictly true but specifically greek and roman religion um, refers to sweet scents quite often and they're often thought to have an apotropaic role as well probably because of the association with divinity and i think with sulfur i don't think sulfur was ever used as an offering like ever mm -hmm. i think it was pretty much like and let's call him ulysses Pff, okay <laughs> odysseus that one odysseus sulfured his house after um killing the suitors as a way to clean cleanse it of death but it was definitely not used as an offering yeah so the the context i guess is very very much used here is it's used um as sort of a supplication, as as uh, nourishment for the gods, because because ambrosia is thought, um, which is um, what the gods eat, is also supposed to be very sweet. So that's probably why those associations develop. But um, in other cultures, we can see that the associations with scent are a little bit more complicated. 
So um, our second case study is in traditional Chinese religion, which I actually didn't know a lot about, but I read um, this review by um, Scott Habkirk, and um, it was it's really, really interesting, actually. So the, the idea of it being used for spirit communication is quite similar. You would burn incense you know, to attract spirits or to communicate with deities, but incense actually has a much more um, complicated role. So... Um, in particular, the incense ash is used to found temples. So when you found a new temple, you're, you're supposed to take the ash from um, the previous one, and it's used as sort of a genealogy. So there's a really important role of fragrance and incense specifically in establishing connections between communities, which I thought was cool. And the incense ash itself, because it's used for um, communication with deities, is thought to have its own powerful properties. So it's not like this is just used and then forgotten about it actually has a sort of power in and of itself because of this property. Yeah, so this um, kind of concept of incense as the bridge between the material and the spiritual starts to emerge here, and um, it's sort of common across cultures. You have this idea that, although academic discourse on religion has largely focused on the intangible, so like beliefs and values and you know what we think about the gods, the um, presence of scent and fragrance and odour is able to make a, kind of make a sensory experience of the divine. So when you're burning incense, you're some people believe that you're actually experiencing divinity in that, and you're able to feed your ancestors by burning incense, for example. It's this concept of the hungry ghost, where you you sort of need to continue burning uh, um, offerings and continue off, um, giving offerings to kind of supplicate your your loved ones in a way. There's also a use of divination. As I mentioned, the um, incense itself is thought to have powerful properties due to its relationship with deity communication. So I think Fel mentioned this earlier and also Astro is used for scrying. It's also used um, for divination in a similar manner. So you're, you can pass these crescent-shaped blocks through the smoke and the answers you'll get from throwing the blocks will um, kind of give you a sort of direct line of communication to the deity, if you like, which I thought was really, really interesting. I've actually never heard of that before. Um, and you can also do this thing where you basically get, you, you draw a straw and you look for the correct straw based on, 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 on turning the blocks. And then you can go to get a strip and it will give you like a more detailed um, divination thing. It's a, it's, a really, it's a really cool method. I've actually never heard of it before. Yeah, in summary, it's, it's not just used for supplication in Chinese um, religion, but also used for establishing connections between communities and also um, prop- having important properties in itself. In Christian mysticism, it's different again because sweet fragrances are used almost to define the appearance of divinity and make it tangible. So rather than using it as a tool, it's more seen as a sort of um, a sign that God is present. And um, there's some really interesting stuff here. Apparently, saints were supposed to smell sweet. So there was a common practice of going um, to uh, venerate a saint to, to a saint's grave, and you would reportedly be able to smell the saint. And this is because... Some Christian mystics like St. Ephraim thought because paradise itself, so the air of heaven, is actually perfumed and fragranced. So when you're experiencing a pleasant scent, you're actually experiencing kind of a taste of that. And that's why saints, supposedly, it's not so good. So it's, it's something that's it's, it's not tangible and it's kind of a metaphor for divinity. And then the final kind of thing that I think we'll be a little bit more familiar with in the occult community is the idea of the oils themselves having sort of their own properties. So I guess this is kind of outlined in our um, Agrippa. I guess this is kind of mentioned in, in the in the mention of Agrippa, but it's the idea that it's not just the use of the fragrance as an offering or the it being important because of its relation to a deity, but the properties intrinsic to the fragrance are what are important. So 
surprisingly, this actually came a lot from theosophy. <laughs> um, so this is kind of a, a new, a more new age thing where sort of um, I the perennial idea that it's, it's sort of borrowed from different cultures, that oils and distillation of them distills down the essence of the plant. And so some people would connect that to sort of animism, so that you're able to actually distill the, the very soul of the plant by making an essential oil. And some people actually believe that because the soul of the plant is present in the oil, there is a kind of agency there. So the oil itself is a, is kind of acting as a spirit. And of course, because it's the new age, um, there's also this idea that the oils themselves have a physical effect. So this is kind of semi-true because some oils do have a physical effect on you. But some of these quotes, man, I saw something saying uh, they contain the ability to operate efficiently on not only the cellular and physical level, but also crossing over the chemical barriers and opening the hidden channels of our minds. This sort of weird idea of like working via vibrations and things like that, which is obviously not very accurate. So there's this idea that also that's really common in the new age of oils being sort of a cultural genealogy and connecting us back to um, ancient cultures which use them. So the idea that okay, ancient Egypt are using oils, Mesopotamia is using oils, Indian Vedic culture using oils, they're all using them for the same purpose. And so it's a sort of, it's an, it's an ability to connect to ancestral memory. But I think this is kind of flawed because if you look at the use of oils and fragrances in different cultures, they're actually used in very, very different ways. So even though we have things like codified into, you know, the three books, that doesn't necessarily mean that the ancient Egyptians were using oils in the same way as like medieval monks, for example. So yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's pretty different to see the um, use of oil in kind of modern witchcraft and the new age is much more connected to their intrinsic properties, the way they affect us, and potentially the agency of the fragrance itself and the oil itself, as opposed to it being a manifestation of divinity or spirit connection, I guess. Yeah, it is interesting how like there's differences between different cultures, but all it like all kind of is still very similar in nature but i think it's really cool this quote here that you have say something about quantum physics <laughs> so i had so many quotes i was like oh i'm just like skimming it's skimming. it was like you said give me strength yeah <laughs> um so this the, uh, yeah this is what i wanted to put earlier so basically there was this idea that essential oils can be used sort of for physical purposes right i mean that, that, that makes sense like we know that there are certain compounds in essential oils that can have chemical properties however um, there are some kind of new age practitioners who will connect the use of oils to chakra alignment, which is, I don't think this is necessarily attested to in Vedic religion. The quote here is, essential oils are key to keeping these wheels of energy open and flowing smoothly. We can use their vibrational energy to fine tune our chakral system, bringing the gift to gift aspects of each center forward and shifting the shadow aspects into their positive state. Not and I mean, if you, yeah, if you look at the oils they're using, they're like not really related to Ayurvedic medicine or have any historical basis in any way. This is just all very modern. And a lot of it comes from um, theosophy where you just kind of take and pick and choose what you want from different religions and then make up the rest as you go along as far as I can tell. Oh, gotta love, gotta love it. We all love theosophy. <laughs> yeah, I don't, that's not, whatever. So yeah, kind of uh, what we've been kind of talking about, like, honestly, I think a lot of the uses for incense and oils have, well, incense specifically, and by oils, I don't mean essential oils, I mean, like, oiled things, like anointing oil. Mm -hmm. I don't really think they've changed all that much. They seem to generally be used for divination, 
offerings, anointing, and purification, those three things. The methods, I think, vary, but generally, in at least in the modern occult circles I've been in, that seems to be what incense or anything smoke-based is used for. Uh, oils seem to be kind of similar, you know, with anointing, purification. Um, I see it less with divination unless you're doing, like, kinds of scrying um, or more ceremonial stuff. But also oh, essential oils tend to be used in very weird ways, mostly with just, like, direct application. Please stop. Um, or Don't diffusers. Do <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, when it comes to perfuming, this was really interesting because I I was really struggling to kind of think of like any sort of occult use of perfume other than like anointing something or like spraying something. But I was thinking about it. It tends, I guess, kind of now it's often used in like glamour magic. I've seen it mentioned in modern glamour magic, as well as people using sprays as a, an alternative to smoke cleansing for example, since sometimes, you know, you can't have smoke in your house. So sometimes people will go around and spray the corners of the room. Um, or like I've seen people make holy water sprays, which is not exactly a perfume, but it is still kind of like a, a spray. Sometimes people add like essential oils to their their sprays or whatever. Um, that's like less like what I think of when I think of actual perfume, but I would still lump that in that similar category. Can you guys think of any other occult uses for perfume specifically? I will admit, I am a person who has a holy water spray bottle. I mean, that's fine. I know people who do too. <laughs> but yeah, definitely not what I think of when I when I think of perfume. I agree with you. I think most of it is probably glamour magic. Um, I think some people also do think where they'll attribute a specific scent to a certain deity and they'll wear like a perfume in honor of, of that. Um, I've seen that a lot as well. Um, those are really kind of the big ones that I'm most familiar with. It depends if you're making your own as well, because I would use it, but I would make my own and then it would be the um, correspondences or associations um, of the ingredients that I'm using. But I think that's also an important thing to mention with perfume, like perfume doesn't always contain what it smells like. And I know that sounds weird, but there's this concept of like fantasy notes. So something that um, smells like, I don't know, like limes, it might not actually contain any lime. It might contain a whole variety of different uh, ingredients to make it smell like a lime. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, am I getting the property of the thing um, because of how I experience it or because what's in it? And so I think it's it's kind of a strange a strange one unless you're actually making your own perfume um, and sort of consecrating that and, and you're using it for something specific related to working. Yeah, that brings up an important point of the fact that when you smell something, it's usually not just a single molecule. You're usually experiencing a mixture of things that leads to a particular scent that you are experiencing with your olfactory um, neurons. So yeah, like like hands, even with oils, this is also funny because when people make their own oils just about home, it's always interesting because they'll talk about how it doesn't smell like what they put in. And so they're expecting like a really heavy scent of like cedar or juniper or like maybe a really woody scent, but it doesn't actually have that. And it's because the molecules that are extracted from the oil may not be like the aromatic molecules may not actually be the most oil soluble ones. Since you're not actually getting that particular part of it out, you're getting something else. That's not to say that the occult virtue isn't there necessarily, but that's certainly a reason why certain oils or tinctures or things like that might not have the smell that you expect. them. In perfume as well, there's, it's kind of important how the notes interact with one another. So you may know this, but there's sort of base notes, heart notes, top notes. And um, so something 
you may, you know, you may make an oil with citrus, but it probably won't smell of citrus for very long because those are top notes which are going to evaporate really quickly. So you actually need to tie that down with something like a sort of skin-like note or a woody note, something like that. And so you can actually work those compositions together and work the correspondences together into a sort of synthesis of, okay, these ingredients are compatible because X, Y, Z, but also when they combine, they smell like this thing. I'm not really explaining this very well, but it's it's sort of an interesting way to combine ingredients and um, compare their virtues, I guess. When you make perfume, I'm going to pick your brain about this a little bit because I'm genuinely curious. Do you do like a distillation method where you have like, do you have like a, I guess, a self-home chemistry distillation set? Or do you just make like a tincture or do something else? Like what's your, what's your process for perfumes? I have tried um, doing my own distillations before and I don't really have like a really big setup for it at home. Like I have to do everything in like super micro batch. So um, it's not something that I actually do very often by myself because it is just such a process. Um, I have done more kind of tinctures and things like alcohol-based tinctures. Um, But frequently what I will do is I will actually um, purchase like the ingredients themselves and then blend them together. Because for me, I'm making like things that are quite complicated in blends and so it would be really absurd for me to have to make like a rose absolute like do you know how much how many rose petals go into a rose absolute like you need so 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 much that being said I have done things like uh, I can't remember what the name for it there's a French name but basically it's where you coat like lots of petals in wax and then those get extracted into the wax and it's kind of like an old school um, method for that so um, you can use ingredients that way but it's very much a labor of love and I wouldn't recommend if you're making like complicated blends doing it that way unless you have like time space money Um, cool what about oils do any of you like make your own oils I know I do I I make lots of my own oils I don't make oils for particular sense because oftentimes if I do anything it'll be like mugwort or wormwood which don't smell good they just straight up don't smell I quite like mugwort I think it smells like chamomile Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, to me, mugwort just generally smells like, like it doesn't smell, to me, it doesn't smell like nice. It just doesn't have any particular, I don't know. Wormwood, on the other hand, to me, just doesn't smell good. But uh, so if anything, I'll use that for like anointing or like putting into, because I make my own candle. So using that to make a, a candle blend. Um, I tend not to make any sort of scented oil because a lot of the scents I like, I might as well just, it would be easier for me to buy a scent. Yeah, I, I make a lot of oils. That's probably like one of the main things in my practice. I obviously have planetary oils because I work very heavily with different planetary spirits. So I'm going to have my own my own blends. But I really like about like your own oil making is that it's really, like I have so many different recipes <laughs> for all the different planets because it really just depends on like what I'm focusing on in that particular time period. So like for like a lunar oil, for example, um, I certainly there are the recipes in Agrippa that you are welcome to follow. I actually, some of them are not very safe. Like the Saturn one is very, is very not safe. Like do not make that. But there are books online that have alternative recipes. Um, and there's one in, with incense that we'll talk about here in a second. But like with, with my lunar oil, it's always different. Like the last time I made it, it was intended to enhance like psychic abilities, be able to see spirits better because I was going to do a series of workings that included conjurations. And so that was really important to me. And so that's, that's, I think what I like a lot about oils is that you can, you can alter them based on like what you're trying to get. And so that kind of extra level of specific intention can offer a lot more to the specific oil. But yeah, and then of course, they also have the holy anointing oil from that's made in Exodus with the very specific specifications. That was a fun time trying to 
figure out how to make that one. I definitely think like there's also two ways of going about making your oils. You can have the method where you like add it to your oil, <clears throat> um, like your base oil, and you let it sit for the six to eight weeks or whatever. Or you can do what I typically do is heat maceration. I think you get a better extraction that way. Um, I'll typically do a couple of rounds to just like really enhance the natural um, smell and just also nature of the oil itself. That's certainly my preferred method versus like the cold maceration, which is where you let it sit, you know, over time. Um, but those are those are the two ways with with oils that I use. And specifically, like when it comes to practice, I usually use them to anoint things. Like, for example, with scrying, if you do like water scrying in a bowl, you can add a drop of lunar oil to enhance like things coming through. I have a scrying mirror that I anoint with like mercurial oil to assist in spirits coming through the mirror. Oils offerings is always good. Like holy anointing oil you can use to anoint your tools or yourself. Before I go to like mass or any kind of religious ceremony, I usually anoint myself with holy anointing oil to kind of just like also get me into the... The headspace because holy anointing oil based on the recipe in exodus is like very aromatic like very aromatic so you can usually smell it for quite a while even after it's like dried on your skin so those are all of the ways that i use oil in my own practice um i think it's a really good thing to like learn how to do because it offers you a lot of flexibility in using it in your spell work well this is something that i was going to ask you actually because does the fragrance actually matter to you because i think this is an interesting difference between like modern occult use versus kind of historical religious use where the modern occult use tends to lean towards the idea of using it for the correspondences and, and what's in it versus using it for because the fragrance itself is divine or the fragrance itself is kind of important like does it matter to you how it smells it depends <laughs> like like holy anointing oil actually if you look at the um if you look at exodus i think it's exodus chapter 30 if you look at the ratio of oil to um ingredients that you put in it's it's incredibly like absurd so you'll you'll have four liters of oil which is certainly a lot but like we're talking like kilograms like five kilograms of cinnamon and there's two different types and you have the five kilograms of the sweet calamus which some people think is lemongrass um so it's like it's an absurd amount of ingredient to bring about that scent um so you can i think push it that direction you just have to be willing to use a lot more of your ingredients for most of my planetary oils, oils and stuff, I'm less concerned about the scent. It's more about the occult virtue of the oil itself. Um, so in that case, the smell is either not there. Like, for example, with my Jupiter oil, the base is olive oil, which has a very strong scent in and of itself. Um, and so I usually don't get many other notes outside of the olive oil because it's so strong. But for my lunar oil, I use almond oil, which is like, it's still there, but it's less potent. And so sometimes other things will come through. Um, camphor comes through very well in the lunar oil because it packs this like very big punch but it doesn't last for very long <clears throat> so it really depends I think on what ingredients you're using within your oil um, and how long and how many different macerations that you do how much of the um, dry ingredients you use that all plays a factor so it really just depends I think on the purpose I don't care so much about scent necessarily for workings but it is nice if it smells good I used to care about scent a lot like especially when it came to candles but now I genuinely, when I go to the herb store, like the occult stores near me, I literally just get frankincense and myrrh and like maybe occasionally other things like sandalwood. Um, I am way more concerned about the properties of whatever I'm using versus the smell of whatever it is. I mean, granted, frankincense and myrrh and bay all smell nice, but I'm not like super pressed about feeling an attachment to the smell versus what 
the property of the herb is mm-hmm. or the resin. That's really interesting because I feel like for me it's actually very important. Um, but it's to the point where I will actually add ambroxan to certain things to actually make it tie down to my skin more, like if I'm wearing it, because I feel that actually being able to smell the herb that I'm using is sort of a reminder of it. And so having something to make it stick down and stay to my skin longer is kind of helpful in that regard. Um, so it's it's almost like the it can take action because of the sort of way that the scent is affecting me. I'm not saying that things don't necessarily have virtues in themselves, but I think the actual ability to smell something and um, have that sort of stimulus is actually quite important. So it's just kind of cool to see how it varies per person. Yeah, absolutely. I guess we could talk about incense really quickly. So I also craft my own incense, shocker, um, for a lot of the same reasons, which is that I'm able to tailor it specifically to what we're doing. And incense is something that's really like very important in Solomonic and most ceremonial magic because it is first of all it's an offering to the spirit so because incense is a matter of air it rises much like how in um Hellenic polytheism like the the incense rises as like an offering and carries your prayers to the gods incense within ceremony magic is very similar it carries your petitions your prayers to the spirit to carry it to the lord so for that reason it's very important but also when you're doing like a conjuration or something, it's very crucial because the it offers a, um, an area or a place for a spirit to embody itself within the smoke. And then you can have a conversation. That's really important. You'll actually find if you go to like a really large ceremonial conjuration, um, there will be plumes of smoke in the triangle to give the spirit a place to appear um, to you physically if you're doing a, a conjuration of physical appearance. So very, very crucial in those ways. Um, incense for me, actually, and this is a case different from the oil, where the oil does not necessarily have to smell good, but the incense does have to have a very particular smell, at least for us in regards to the spirits. Because we often say within the ceremony community, like the smell of humans is actually something that the spirits do not enjoy. They don't like the way they smell, which is why we have our purification rites beforehand. It's why we fumigate the space with frankincense. Um, and it's why we offer um, in specific incense offerings based on like what Agrippa has in the three books. That's because specific spirits are prefer specific certain like specific scents there are spirits that have very specific like smells and herbs that you'll burn for them and oftentimes if you if you call up a spirit they'll tell you what it is and be like oh burn this like this is what will bring me or what i prefer um but then you also have the more general aspect of that which is where you if it's a mercurial spirit you burn a mercurial incense right and allegedly the synchronicity of the correspondence should be enough to bring them forward I will note, um, regarding like ceremonial incense with the plants and stuff, again, Agrippa's Three Bucks, great starting place, not the best of recipes. Um, I think specifically, again, the Saturn incense includes like sulfur and henbane and hemlock and all those things you probably shouldn't be touching. <clears throat> um, but there is a book called The Fumigation of Incense by S. Aldonay, um, which you can find, I think it's from Haiti and Press. Um, it has a, he includes all of Agrippa's recipes and he also includes all of his own recipes um that are much much safer for you to use if you don't want to like actually go through the process of crafting your own based on agrippa's recommendations so highly recommend that book if you want to make your own incense but i think it's again a really good way but also like no shame against stick incense because i still use it (laughs) so it's kind of like do whatever works right do any of you craft your own incense or i know phil just uses frankincense and myrrh right (laughs) Yeah, I literally just use frankincense and myrrh almost exclusively. Occasionally, if I go to some place and I feel like kind of like pulled, I used to like buy candles and incense based on like the name of something because I felt it told a story. And then I like went the totally 
opposite direction. I did not buy incense if I did not know what was in it. But occasionally I will use, like I have an incense called Old Books that I like to burn to Athena, for example. So for that, I, I kind of, I don't, again, it's not like a scent association. It's more association with the kind of story. So it depends, but generally almost 100% I use just frankincense and myrrh. Yeah, I will I will make my own. A lot of the time, I say, like, I do still use stick incense quite a lot because, um, like, prayer has to be often, and <laughs> making enough incense for that is, is um, actually quite a significant task. Um, but I will definitely use different particular incenses for particular workings, for example. So if I'm doing a devotional to Aphrodite, I would always use this rose incense, for example, and that's just a personal association that I have. Or I might craft something kind of based on sort of herbalist virtues. If I'm doing a working with a deity, then I'm, um, that might be something that I include in that. So it's kind of like a synthesis, I guess, of like Hellenic polytheism and then sort of more modern ideas on herbalism. Something also that I think is interesting is the scent itself can be important during like a meditation, for example. So if I'm I'm actually burning something during something with a deity and I might be doing a meditation, the change in the scent might indicate to me that there is something occurring, if that makes sense. So it's it's kind of like a like a cultural context clue that um, I use. It's quite um, it's quite a useful thing. I, I would say the incense is actually most of what I use actually for my practice and more than anything else. Yeah, I think it's is really important to kind of get people into a, a specific state too. Like I, I scry every evening. I try <laughs> to scry every evening. The lighting of frankincense at the beginning of that is what kind of pulls me into the appropriate state that I need to be in to appropriately scry. That's something that I developed over time. It's something actually, so there's a good scrying book for beginners by Donald Tyson, part of Lou Wellens, I think, beginner series. But in that, he makes this point where not only is consistency good, but also like doing the same thing over and over. So that routine puts you into the state. And one of the ways you can do that is by burning a particular incense each time you go to do something. I think that's really important. That's like my kind of huge, my brain, like, hey, we're about to start ritual like set everything else aside and let's just focus and get do this thing so I think that's also really important I think it's a really great way to kind of help people like if you struggle getting into a specific state for like meditation or trans work or path working whatever I think incense is a really good way to bring that about just simply by scent memory association yeah it's kind of like we were talking about before it sort of makes divinity tangible and it makes it it makes it experiential and something that you can have right in front of you rather than yeah, it's really hard. To, it's really hard to explain, but I guess it is that sort of that memory association. It's it's something that um, allows you to bring the ineffable actually into your your home or your um, your ritual space just mm-hmm. by having that sense all around you. I recently turned like a uh, room in my home into a temple space, and it's interesting because I'll shut the door um, after I'm finished for obvious reasons, but. I will enter in and there will be a lingering sense of like frankincense or whatever I was burning. And it kind of automatically just makes the space seem more holy in nature. Um, and so I tend to like, it, it does. There's, I've it's been done enough times now where I, as soon as I enter, there's that association of like, this is a time for like spiritual work and, you know, don't do anything in here that isn't appropriate to be doing in this space. Uh, so I think over time it certainly helps and it can really I think even turn a space very potent and like special to you as the protect as the practitioner, which is also really cool. We talked a lot. So are there any final thoughts before we close out the episode? I'm going to take the silence as a no. <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you found that interesting, both our talk of sense and how it works and then also 
how we utilize scents and oils and incense all in our own practice. Stay tuned. Next week, we will be back with a, another episode. If you haven't already, feel free to join our Discord. We have conversations there that are kind of sporadic right now, but we're getting back in the groove. We are posting on our Instagram again with upcoming episode releases and everything. So keep track of us and we'll let you know when things come out. All right. Bye, everybody. We'll see you again next week. Thank you.